Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. The book of Matthew, if you don't have a Bible, you can find um, a white or blue paperback Bible underneath the chairs in front of you, and you can open to page 471, 471, Matthew chapter 1. I happen to be reading through a biography of George Washington right now. It's one of my favorite pastimes is to read biographies of great historical figures, great people. George Washington, first president of the United States, learning lots of things about George Washington, just interesting things. He was very, very skilled on a horse. I mean, he was like a really great horse rider. He um, had no college education. He never wore a wig, contrary to popular belief. Everybody thinks the early presidents wore wigs. George Washington didn't. Didn't have any children of his own. This guy who was kind of a slow to speak and reserved, but had a hot temper. He didn't want to make George Washington mad. Um, he was successful in leading our country to victory in the War of Independence, but he actually lost more battles than he won. George Washington, a great man in many ways. Well, today, we're going to begin reading some biographies. A biography, first of all, here written by a man named Matthew, and it's about a man who lived 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man. He wasn't president of any country. His occupation actually was that of a carpenter, but he's a very great man, the greatest man who's ever lived. Uh, if you have an interest in biographies and you haven't read any of the biographies of Jesus, I would ask you why. Here is the greatest man who has ever lived. We want to know about him, and this man's name is Jesus Christ. So we are beginning here the New Testament. Um, through the last year and a month or so, we've been going through a sermon series called Route 66. We've been looking at one sermon per Bible book. We've moved our way all the way through the Old Testament. And this year we begin... This, uh, not this year, this morning we begin the New Testament. And the New Testament begins with these four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we don't normally call these biographies because that's not quite the accurate word to use. They're actually called gospels. And most of you have heard that word, but let me clarify something. When we hear the word gospel, what we mean is the good news that's a way to describe what Jesus has done for us. It's the good news of his death and resurrection for sinners. That's the gospel. But these four books that start the New Testament are called gospels. And when we say it that way, we mean it just a little bit differently. What we're talking about here is kind of like a literary type, like mystery or science fiction, biography. And then you have gospel. It's a kind of literary genre, and it's somewhat unique. There uh, was no such thing as a gospel before the New Testament. So in the New Testament, it comes to us as something kind of new. And it's not exactly the same as a biography, actually. There are some significant differences. 
So for instance, in a modern day biography, generally you will learn, uh, or the author will write pretty much everything that he or she can find about the person. So it's kind of exhaustive, but we don't get that in the Gospels. There's a lot we don't know about Jesus. We don't learn anything, for instance, about his youth, uh, except for Luke chapter 2 when he was in the temple. But from his birth to the beginning of his ministry, we learn very little. So that's a difference between the Gospels and a biography. Biographies also <clears throat> often give you a description of the way their subject looks, their physical appearance. But we don't get that in the Gospels. We don't get anything about what Jesus looked like. And modern day biographies tend to be always in chronological order, but the gospel's not always that way. Sometimes information or events are, are shifted for the writer's purpose. So, not quite the same. Gospel's not quite the same as biographies, but still a lot in common. And um, one of the uh, key points about these gospels is that the ones who are writing them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they definitely have an agenda. They want you to read these stories and believe upon Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to die for sins, to save you. That's what the writers want you to know and to believe, and they are not apologetic about it. And some people respond to that and they say, oh, well, if the gospel writers had an agenda, then we can't trust them because they had something in mind that they wanted to accomplish and they couldn't have written objective history. That's what a lot of people will say. But, but that's not true. I'm just going to quote a guy here named R.T. France who says, the greatest and most influential histories and biographies have been written from a position of commitment with an ax to grind, so to speak. That is, everybody who writes a biography is trying to make a point. They all have an agenda of some sort. They either want to commend this person or they want to malign this person. But they are not therefore assumed to be factually unreliable, even though the writers have an agenda. Christian commitment and an evangelistic purpose are not in themselves evidence of historical incompetence or misrepresentation. So we shouldn't think, oh, these are Christians and they have their Christian agenda, and so therefore they're going to write bad history. No, that's not a proper conclusion to draw. They do have an agenda. They want you to believe. But what they write is a reliable account of what actually happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So that's what we're going to be looking at here in the next four Sundays. Let me give you just some background information about Matthew, the author of this first book of the New Testament. Matthew was a Jewish man, also known as Levi. His occupation was that of a tax collector. That means he worked for the Romans, which means he was probably pretty unpopular as a Jew because the Romans were the oppressors, the enemy. But Matthew came to know Jesus as Savior, put his faith in him, was born again, and gave his life to following uh, this Savior. And then eventually wrote this gospel in about 8060s. So you might remember Malachi. That was the last book in the Old Testament. That was in the 5th century B.C. So now we're 60 years or so after the birth of Jesus. So... There's like a 500-year gap in the writing of Scripture between Malachi and the writing of Matthew. Significant events in Matthew, and we'll see these in most of the Gospels, uh, the birth of Jesus, his baptism, um, temptation in the wilderness, which we just talked about with the children, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, generally, we think about that as just in Matthew. There are parts of that in other Gospels, but 
Mostly Matthew is known for the one writing about the Sermon on the Mount. Many parables in Matthew, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection, and the Great Commission. We find that in Matthew. And the theme of Matthew is just simply this, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah bringing the kingdom of God to earth. So, it just seemed right to me as we were beginning the New Testament that we would begin at the very beginning of the New Testament. And what that means is we're going to have to read a genealogy. So, the first 17 verses here in chapter 1 are the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so, if you are able, please stand, and I'm going to read these verses and do the best I can to not mess up these names. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, starting in, in uh, verse 1. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hesron, and Hesron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Asor, and Asor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Elizar, and Elizar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. God in heaven, please help us to behold wonderful things, even in a genealogy like this. Help us to do that, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, well, you might be asking, why did we just do that? Why did we read all of these names? Well, I, I think we can learn actually some pretty significant things about Jesus Christ of Nazareth uh, through this. And the first thing we're going to see here is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. 
the reason why we read this, and you know, we might be tempted to want to skip over this. I mean, let's just admit it, that this is one of those boring parts of, of Scripture. Uh, these are the parts of Scripture we're tempted to overlook when we're reading through it. We, we feel like maybe these are not that important. But we do believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and training us in righteousness, and that includes the genealogies. God has put this in his word for our edification. And what it is, is a genealogy. We see that in verse 1, the book of the genealogy. Now, I know we think, oh, this maybe seems kind of boring, but um, actually people are quite interested in genealogies, aren't they? I mean, it seems to be kind of a, a craze today. You know, we've got Ancestry.com, which is quite a, a profitable business where people look into their history. And Ancestry.com says, we will connect you to the places where your story started. And that's what this genealogy is doing. It's connecting us to the places where the story of our Savior started. Now, if we're interested in that for ourselves, we ought to be interested in that for the Son of God, don't you think? That's what a genealogy is doing, seeking to give us a background, a history. And the reason I, I chose this is because I thought we should start at the very beginning of Matthew, but also I want you to see to reaffirm what we talked about last week, remember, which is that the New Testament is not the start of something brand new. Do you see how the New Testament is starting? With reference to the Old Testament. This is a, what we have just read is basically a history of the entire Old Testament, this genealogy. So there is a basic continuity between the old and the new. The new is not brand new. Yes, there are new things in the new, but as a story, the new is simply continuing what the old began. The old is now expanding into the new. The new relies on the old, and the old looks forward to the new. So we see three parts to this genealogy. Verse 17 kind of sums this up. You see there's biblical basis for three-point sermons. See this in verse 17? There's three parts. The generation from Abraham to David, that's one, 14 generations there. And then from David to the exile, another 14 generations, that's part two. And then from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, another 14 generations. Now, no, this is probably not literally 14 generations. Um, sometimes names are left out of genealogies so that the writer can make a point. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just they're making a point. Maybe there's 14, 14, and 14 here as a way of helping people to memorize these genealogies. But in any case, we have the writer breaking this genealogy into three parts. And of course, there are some kind of weird names here, and this is, might be another reason why we sometimes get bored with this. We say, all of these obscure names, you know, who are these people? Azor and Zadok and Akim. <laughs> who are these people? And we don't know much about them, and so we think they're obscure. But let me put this in perspective. These names, friends, are not obscure. These names are recorded in Holy Scripture. <laughs> Your names are obscure. <laughs> My name is obscure. These names are recorded in the Word of God, which will never pass away. These names have been preserved on the pages of Scripture for centuries. These names are included in the genealogy of the Son of God. That's not obscure. So why would we look at this and glaze over and become bored? We, we shouldn't. So what do the genealogies 
tell us? What are their purpose? Well, two things, really. They tell us something about the, the person for whom the genealogy is being given. They, they tell us something about that person's heritage. Um, they're used for inheritance um, issues and for legal rights that that person might have. That was kind of some of the basic purposes. Uh, in this case, the person is Jesus. And what Matthew wants to do is make sure the point is made that Jesus is a descendant of, in verse 1, the son of David. The son of David. Matthew wants his audience, which is mostly Jewish people, that's who Matthew is, is writing to, he wants them to know that this Jesus is a descendant of this great king named David. So the genealogy is given to prove his, his royal lineage, that he, Jesus, <laughs> is a descendant of the promise in the Old Testament of the one who would come and inherit the throne of God and reign over the world forever and ever. And so Matthew is saying, here are his papers, so to speak. Here is the proof. Um, some of you know that, that Mary and I um, have border collie dogs. We, we love border collies. And so we've owned many border collies. And I remember the, the first border collie that I bought, uh, Derby, um, I was told by the breeder that that Derby was a like a prize-winning dog, that she had um, ancestors back in Scotland who had won all of these herding trials, and that this dog came from really good stock. And you know, of course, anybody can say that when they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> but they provided the papers, and they said, "Here it is," and it was these papers with. My dog's lineage just back several generations all the way back to Scotland, proving that Derby was the real deal. A purebred border collie with royal lineage. And that's kind of what this genealogy is about, saying that Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the king that you have been waiting for. He is here. So, something about the person is learned, but also something about God is learned through these genealogies. We learn two things. Number one, we, we see God's sovereignty, his control over all things. God is the one who reigns over every single parent and every single child who was born throughout this genealogy, all by his plan. And you'll notice that there are some things in this genealogy that are not exactly things to be celebrated. So, for instance, in verse 12, the deportation to Babylon is mentioned. That's the exile. Remember, we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament talking about the exile. This was an absolute low point for the nation of Israel. That's when God said, I'm done with you. Kick them out of the land so that they would be exiled to Babylon because of the covenant curses that were being brought upon them. And for a lot of Jews at that time, they thought, it's, it's over. The whole redemptive story is finished. It's done. We blew it. God has no interest in us anymore. And yet, we look at this genealogy, and we see that, no, God is sovereign, even over the exile, that he and his grace kept the promise alive. The exile was not the end. And you might be in a point where you've done something or you've been in some situation and you think, this is the end. I've blown it. There's no more hope for me. God has certainly turned away from me forever because of this thing. No. God is sovereign 
And he can take the worst trouble, the worst mistakes, and weave them into his divine and wise purposes. And that's what he's doing here. The deportation to Babylon is not hidden. It's brought out so that we can see God's sovereignty over this. But then we also see God's faithfulness, of course. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. The very first promise, Genesis 3.15, where God said, I am going to bring a descendant of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's where this whole thing started. And so through all of these generations, God has been keeping his promise. In verse 17, we see 14, 14, and 14 generations. That's 42 generations. Over the course of 42 generations, God slowly and painstakingly, one generation after another, fulfilling his promise. Don't you see how slowly God works? He takes his time, and he doesn't operate on our timetable. How often do we want God to do something, to give us this now, to resolve this problem now, to fix this thing now, and we're frustrated and we think he's forgotten? No, he hasn't forgotten you. He just moves slowly. He takes his time. But he's always faithful, and he's always worth waiting on. Don't give up waiting on God, even though he's moving slowly in your life right now. I saw this movie years ago, a documentary, um, about a guy who lived in the ghetto, and he was talking about when he was a kid, and he said when he was a kid, he was always hoping that Superman would come to fix all of his problems. And he said one day his mother told him, Superman doesn't exist. And he said he just broke down and wept. He was just devastated, because he thought, there's nobody out there with enough power to save me from my problems. The name of that movie was Waiting for Superman. Very often, and probably all of us, we're we're waiting for something. We're waiting for Superman to come. What are you waiting on? Who are you waiting on to come and fix your problems, to make you whole, to give you hope? He's already come. That's what this genealogy is telling us. He's already come. He's going to come again, but he's, he's come in the past for you. The one you're waiting for has come, and he has plenty of power to save you and redeem you. Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one that God said would come, and he did come in God's timing. But we also see this from the genealogy, that God is the Savior of sinners. The Savior of sinners. So we see at the beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's his name. And at the end of verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gives birth to Jesus, who is called Christ. So, uh, you know, very often we think of Christ as if it's Jesus' last name. Like, my last name is O'Bannon. Like, you know, Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name. When you look at verse 16, that's not true, right? Jesus is called Christ. There are some meanings tied up in this name that are important for us to understand. Christ actually means anointed one or Messiah. Christ, not a last name, it's a title. Jesus is actually based on a Hebrew word for Joshua. And that name means the Lord saves. So in that name, Jesus Christ, we see he is the anointed Messiah who comes to save But now the question is, to save from what? 
So the Jews had this expectation of a Messiah who was going to come and save them from the oppression of the Romans, to save them from the political enemies, to restore Israel to glory one day. That's what the typical Jew was expecting. But is that what Jesus came to do? He came to save, but save from what? The answer is clear. If you just go a few more verses to Matthew 1.21, and here is the angel speaking to Joseph, and he says this, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus has come to do, to save you from your sins. That's his primary purpose. That was the Father's primary goal, to send Jesus into the world to save you from your sins. We get into so much trouble, I think, when we begin to expect God to do things for us that he never promised to do. God did not promise to make all your dreams come true. He didn't promise to make you a happy person. I just don't see that in, in Scripture. He didn't come. He didn't, he didn't promise that he would make our church a certain size. He didn't promise that he would keep you from trouble. He didn't promise that he would remove all sorrow from your life in this life. He didn't promise that he would exalt the United States of America as the most powerful nation in the world forever and ever. God did not promise those things. But one thing he did promise is that in Jesus, your sins would be atoned for. Your sins would be paid for. That's what God has promised to do, And we see an example of this, many examples of this, throughout this genealogy. The kinds of people that God has come to save. First of all, he's come to save the foolish. Look in verse 9 and 10. In Jesus' genealogy is this man named Hezekiah. The end of verse 9. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Who is Hezekiah? That's a more recognizable name. Hezekiah was a pretty good king, but at the end of Hezekiah's life, do you know what he did? When the Babylonians came in, he said, hey, Babylonians, come on in and look at all this stuff we have in the temple. Look at all of these beautiful, wonderful, luxurious things. And the Babylonians did exactly what a wise person would have expected them to do. They looted the place and stole all those things. And Hezekiah, even as good as a king as he was, was rebuked for that. It was like, what are you doing, Hezekiah? This is the enemy, and you're showing them all of the luxurious items that exist in the temple? He was acting like a fool. But here he is in the genealogy of our Savior, the Jesus, the, the Christ, the Messiah, who comes to save even, even foolish people. Jesus saves the immoral, the immoral. Uh, several examples of this. Uh, verse um, 6, it says, <clears throat> Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Remember, that's Bathsheba. That's describing an adulterous relationship that took place between David and Bathsheba. But we also see back at verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, Tamar was a woman who had relations with her father-in-law by posing as a prostitute. That was Tamar. And we also have mention of Rahab in verse 5. Rahab uh, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by 
Ruth. Rahab was a prostitute. She worked as a prostitute. She probably ran something like a, a brothel. And here are these individuals in the genealogy of Jesus, in Jesus' lineage. So what Matthew wants you to see is that these are the kinds of people that Jesus came to save. The immoral, the foolish, even the wicked. Verses 9 and 10, there's a mention of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Ahaz, just a wicked king. He built up pagan altars in the temple. Verse 10 mentions Manasseh. Manasseh, who the writer describes as more wicked than all the nations. Here's Israel called to be righteous, but here's Manasseh, the king of Israel, and he's more wicked than, than the nations. And yet, here they are in Jesus' genealogy because Jesus came to save the wicked. And Jesus also came to save the outcast, the marginalized. One thing you, you'll notice is the mention of many women here in this genealogy. And I already mentioned uh, a few of them. There's five women actually mentioned, Mary included. That might not seem that big of a deal to our sensibility, but in these days, you would never include women in a genealogy. It was totally unusual because descent was always traced through men in a very patriarchal society. But here, Matthew wants you to see that he's going to include women, those marginalized, those outcasts, those with no place in society, even those Jesus came to save. It's all summed up in, later in Matthew where it says, Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came for sinners. And so maybe you're here today and, and you're feeling really foolish and you're plagued by the guilt of your immoral lifestyle. You feel like you've done things that are positively wicked. You feel like you're an outcast. You're marginalized. No one has time for you. You're overlooked. You're the kind of person Jesus came to save. He came for you. Or Kanye West, you've been hearing a lot about Kanye West's con conversion to, to Christianity. You know, Kanye West used to say that he was a god. I mean, that's a pretty wicked thing to say for a human being, to say, unless you are God. So that applies, okay, to Jesus, but not to Kanye. Kanye used to claim that he was God, and now he says, I'm a son of God. And he says, I exist now to testify to what Jesus Christ did for me. Kanye West seems to be converted to Christ because Jesus came to save the wicked, the immoral, the outcast, the foolish, the prideful. And if that describes you, Jesus is your Savior. The last thing that we see here is that Jesus came as a blessing to the world. Jesus came as a blessing to the world. I've mentioned these, these women. Um, <clears throat> let's go back, consider these briefly. Tamar, again, verse 3, Tamar was a, a Jewish woman. Genesis 38, Mary, of course, also Jewish woman, uh, verse 16. But these other women, Rahab, mentioned in verse 5, was actually a Canaanite. Her story is in Joshua 2. Ruth, mentioned in the book of Ruth, was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, mentioned in 2 Samuel 11, was probably a Hittite because her husband was a Hittite. And so what we see here in, again, Jesus' lineage is people who are on the outside, 
We see Gentiles here. These are not all Jewish people. And that shouldn't surprise us because in verse 1 it says Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. You remember the promise given to Abraham? Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That was God's intent through Abraham, to bless the nations, to bless the whole world. And here we see in this genealogy that Jesus has come to do that, to not just bless those on the inside, but to bless those on the outside as well. That is the entire world and all nations. And that's why Matthew ends with the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we take from that, of course, the exhortation for churches to engage in missions, and that's a big responsibility. That's why we take missions very seriously here in this church. We want the world to hear. We want the nations to know, and so we support missionaries, and we go to the world to take the gospel. But let me just kind of invert this to get a new perspective on this. This idea that Jesus has come for the world, come for the nations. Friends, we, I think, forget this, but... You and I are the nations. You and I are, are the Gentiles. Now, I mean, there might be some Jewish people here. I, I don't know. But my guess is that the majority of us in this room are Gentiles. We're, we're, we're the ones who are far away from God's purposes. We are the outsiders that God in his grace has chosen to bring us in. We were strangers to the covenant promises, but God pursued us by grace into the far reaches of the world. Here in America, we think of Africa as the far reaches of the world. Well, if you look at things from New Testament perspective, the United States is the far reaches of the world. You and I are the outsiders. We're not the insiders. But God had mercy on us. God had grace on us. When I went to Chengdu, China to teach um, last year, there was a guy there named Jeremiah and he was an American, and he was serving there as a missionary. And I'm there for a week in a hotel room by myself, not really knowing what's going on. And here's Jeremiah reaching out to me, texting me, how are you doing? Calling me, taking me out for dinner and for lunch, giving me directions, explaining how I can get here and there, making sure I knew the plan. You don't know how much I appreciated that. And I can only think that the reason why Jeremiah reached out to me that way is because he knew that I was an outsider, and he too was once an outsider. Because he was an American in China. He went through it. He knew what it was like to be on the outside. And so he reached out to someone else who was also on the outside. And that's the calling to you and me, friends, as God's people, to have a heart for the outsider. Because we were outsiders. The new neighbor on your block who just moved in from another city and they don't know anything about the town. Reach out to them. The new people that you see in this church on Sunday mornings, we get visitors pretty regularly. They come in, they, they feel like outsiders. We need to reach out to them and make them feel like insiders. Because that's what God did for us. He pursued us in his grace. He chased us down by the hounds of heaven. He got the gospel to us. He sent his spirit to us and opened our ears and opened our eyes. He softened our hearts that we might receive Jesus as Savior and come into the family of God. So let us be people with a heart for the outsider. That's the last thing we learn here in this genealogy. So here's the plan. We 
um, are going to move on to Mark next week. We'll look at the life of Jesus as we get to Mark. And when we look to Luke, we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And we, uh, in John, we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus, which means we're going to be talking about the resurrection pretty close to Christmas, which is a little unusual. <laughs> but hopefully you'll understand. And uh, that's the plan for the next next four Sundays of this series. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for um, your story that has <clears throat> unfolded before our eyes by your sovereignty. Um, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that you are the promised Messiah, that you are the Savior of sinners, and that you're a blessing to the whole world, which includes us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.